just want to say before I begin Matthew 18. So when you sing, um, now I think God is clever, and he's, he's so clever in everything that he does. The fact that he's given us all um, a vocal ability. Even guys that are, um, years, ago, years ago I was in a, 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 a home for, for deaf people. I've actually been in a couple of homes for deaf people, once with Craig Watkins when we were prayer, prayer walking in the middle of winter at six in the morning, it was pitch dark, and we were walking in Milton somewhere on, uh, on commercial, and, and uh, we, everybody was walking, Des, every, like it was a crowd of the men, I think, it was just men, and we went through the season of, of prayer walking, and we were walking down commercial, and there looked like it be a residential house, or a couple of cars, so we came in, we saw it was obviously something, we knocked on the door, no one answered, so Craig opens the door, and we walk in, okay, into what seems to be a lounge. And as we walked into the lounge, I had one look around me, and I saw that we were in a house for deaf people, okay? So I said, good morning, to which no one responded. And then Craig goes, shakaraba, saraba, shakaraba, hara. <laughs> if, you, if you're young, if you're new to the church, we just chill, chill. He just started praying and thinking, God, <laughs> Anyway, it had nothing to do with this, what I'm saying to you, yeah, but, 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 but even the deaf people have, have, have ranges. Some of them squeak, some of them girdle from inside, and everybody has an utterance. And that's why I felt that the, the, the Word of God says that, that we can make a, a joyful noise. All right? It does say many times in the psalm that we sing beautifully in harmony and all those kind of things, but it also says a joyful noise. And when we sing like we, like we sing this morning, and your, vocal, your voice starts to rise above the sound of the instruments, then I feel, honestly, that's what heaven's like. I really do. I do love that. That's like a dream for anybody who leads singing. It's like when the, when the people are forgotten. And that's why I get emotional, because I look at the faces of people, and they're gone. They're in a different place. They're in the throne room. And their eyes are closed. Some are, some are just... It's, it's a beautiful thing, so, so I just want to encourage you in that. Okay, Matthew 18. Welcome to the most difficult chapter in the Gospels. Tie your seatbelts. Mark, what happened, dude? Hockey, of course. Hockey. <laughs> Angie and hockey sounds very close. Angie, hockey. So, yeah, Matthew chapter 18. Just tell someone next to you it's going to be okay. I'm with you. It's going to be okay. Michael's going to be okay. We're going to get through. So Matthew chapter 18, let's go. I'm going to just do it as I did last time. Eric did a great job last week of 16 and 17. I can tell you right now, it is going to be literally impossible for me to get through 18 and 19, but I'm going to do my best. Okay? And I was instructed to speak slowly and simply and not be long. All of those I'm going to violate. But it's only church once a week, guys. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, everybody say change, and become like the little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Say, enter the kingdom. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, like like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes this little one who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand 
or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter the life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So this, these two chapters are, are, are woven. It's a woven story of community and relationship. It's really a, a greater picture that God is trying to paint to his disciples and to the multitude that are following him of what the kingdom of heaven is like. There are many things about the kingdom that's incredible, but one thing about the kingdom is that it, it is always increasing. It has no fence. You can't be indecisive. You're either in, in, the, in the kingdom in the sense that you are um, um, adding to its increase, or you are not in the kingdom, in which case you are not, uh, you're not uh, cut off by God. You're just not a part of the kingdom. And you're not making the kingdom plain. That's why we are called ambassadors. And that's why we have been given ministries of reconciling people back to God. And the way that we do that is by living relationally. And Jesus says some serious words right here. Okay? He deals with uh, suicide, um, self-mutilation, um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, hectic stuff. And, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I, I read through this and I thought, is there any way for me to palatable, uh, to make this more palatable? But there isn't. There isn't. Because obviously Jesus is trying to get our attention about a value that is so intrinsic to the kingdom and making it known that it is so important for him to shock us into a reality. And he knows that all of us in this place, let me just see, just by the sheer things that Kath uh, said this morning, we can see, is there anybody here that's never been hurt by anybody? You've never had your feelings hurt by anybody ever in your life. Because I want to build a shrine to you right here and start to bow down right now. So obviously we've all been hurt. And, and, and you know, in, a, in our secular world of thinking, we do not think of those that we have in turn being hurtful towards, often. Or as much as we think about those who have hurt us. And so Jesus says here clearly that he's basically saying that we are a people and that uh, we are going to hurt each other and um, people are going to hurt us and we are going to hurt people. And um, he says we need to change because we need to not only um, want to uh, come and take we need to, we want, we should, we, the, the way that the kingdom is, is comes among us is if we take not only from the kingdom that which benefits us, because there's lots. The, pres- the presence of God in itself is the most overwhelmingly beautiful reality because in the presence of God, our lives change, our hearts melt, strongholds in our brains, chains smash. Sheer presence of God. So that's great. But not only do we want to take from the presence of God, but we want to contribute to the presence of God. And I think Jesus is making a serious statement here by saying, if we hinder any one of these little ones, and there's a, there's a dualistic play on this little one, he's also speaking to his disciples and refers to them several times throughout the gospel as little ones. So unless we change and become like a child, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because he's so, he must have been so gobsmacked by the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, oh, are you serious, God? You still don't get it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so he, he, he shows this picture that it's going to be just mutual hurting of one another. But if we don't take responsibility for the kingdom reality in our lives, 
then, then it's, 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 it's almost better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck and quick drowning. To be drowned quickly. And that's as much as I can exposit on this, on this piece right now. And also, cut your hand off, cut your foot off. If you read through the book of Proverbs, it has a lot of mention of the, the, hand, the hand cut off and the foot cut off. And there are some things there, but for sake of time, I can't go into that right now. You, you could buy me a coffee and I'll explain it to you more if you need to. But there's so much out there that you can find. So then it goes on to the parable of the lost sheep. Um, I just want to quickly see. So he's very serious about this. Um, I just want to say something about verse 7. If you go back there, it's, it, it's a very serious stop to, um, to look at ourselves because he pronounces a, a woe so that uh, um, um, a woe is a warning. It's a, it's a warning that he, that he gives to his followers. And the reason why I say followers now will become clearer to you later because there's a different reference here to a place that we get to, particularly in, 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 uh, later on in 18, where we can see and come to a conclusion that, okay, based on your processing of life, I can, I can see that you are not a follower. So there is the space in which Jesus says, you can say you're a follower, but based on how you live in the kingdom or how much responsibility you take for the kingdom, in, in, in light of the fact that if you hold anyone back or if you hurt anyone and don't take responsibility, it's better for you to be maimed or, or drowned that you can come to a conclusive um, realization at the end of it that there are some who say they are followers, but they're not followers. I hope that makes sense. And he speaks a woe. He says it's a warning. He warns. He says, please, be warned. Be warned. And I want to say to you that there are people that I know and that you know and that, that are all over the world that have experienced the presence of God in the church of God that have come to a place in their lives where no one is woeing them. Say, whoa, this is a warning. You cannot profess that you want to be a follower of Jesus, yet your life is this way inclined. But you have a desire for the church and for the kingdom, but there is no desire or responsibility within you to take. And Jesus is extreme about that. And we are holding others back in that regard. Now the holding back, if I can elaborate a little bit about that. And um, you know, Jesus says at the end when you see a brother is not a believer or a brother, or someone that professes this reality is not that. It says, treat him like an unbeliever and a tax collector. The way that Jesus treated unbelievers and tax collectors is not by cutting them off. He had dinner, he had dinner with them. He engaged with them. He pursued them. But the understanding was clear, clearly defined here. At the end of this talk, I hope that what I'm saying to you becomes so clear that if we profess to be followers of Jesus, then there's responsibility on our lives. And the lack of that, taking that responsibility and just wanting the presence will result in a paralyzed generational reality. The next generation will not want what we have because it's too insipid. It doesn't have salt, depth, power, strength, conviction. It just has, it's like joining the club. It's so cool. The best thing about coming to Red Hill is the espresso machine. And Alessandro. Okay, I'm just making it up. Or whatever. He's so gracious, he always just laughs at my... <laughs> and nothing ever changes. And we hinder. Jesus says, whoa, watch out, there's a warning for you. To proclaim or to claim that you're a follower of Jesus without taking responsibility and a kingdom reality that changes the way you live. 
In other words, you cannot do one thing and then say, I'm going to bring people to the presence of God. It's so amazing, but my life looks completely different to the kingdom of God. See, you can't separate the two. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. He knows we're going to hurt each other. And he warns us about that. And he says, you will hurt and you will be hurt. And then the chapter continues further on. And he gives us all these wonderful things. But in, but in the end of days, Jesus is coming back to, to, to a world that looks like the kingdom of heaven. And that's what's happening. Heaven coming to earth is not going to be a cosmic event. It's going to take generations. And that's why we cannot forget the relational reality of a generation. Our children is that reality. And, and it's a big deal. And nothing surpasses that. Even this morning when Kath was talking about marriage, marriage doesn't supersede the kingdom. Because you can live a full, fulfilled, awesome life on earth as a single guy or a single girl. And if you make marriage your goal, and even if you never get marriage, you'll be duped into idolatry for your entire life and will not represent the kingdom. Because Jesus Christ, the most successful human ever on this planet, was not married in this world. And also, you see scriptures about marriage that speak about in heaven there's going to be no giving and receiving in marriage. It's like weird because our thinking is so secular. It's so far removed from a kingdom reality. And little by little by little, God is bringing us closer and closer and closer to this glorious existence where we are truly one, where we are no longer hindering people from coming into the kingdom because we realize we are the subjects of the kingdom and we don't just want the kingdom, we want the king and the kingdom. It's awesome. And I think I've kind of way off topic here, but anyway. So the parable of the lost sheep. See that you do not look down on these little ones. Speaking of disciples, young, young, young followers. For I tell you that the angels in heaven see the face of their father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep. Okay, I'm not going to go into the angels thing. Okay, we know. Let me just say one thing about angels very quickly. If the question is posed to me, do you believe in angels, yes or no, I'll say, heck yes, I believe in angels. They are all throughout Scripture. But for us to worship the angelic hosts, the Bible actually says that we were created higher than the angels. I don't believe the angel, the angelic host, has the, has the, has the autonomy that we have and the, and the power of, of freedom of choice as the human race has. But that's just my scriptural thing that I see here. But I definitely do not worship angels. And there are ministering angels assigned to those who are being saved. And we can pray that. We can say, God, will you please assign the angelic hosts? And there, I've been in places where people have encountered the presence of an angel. Um, and um, do I believe in angels? Absolutely. And if you're wondering where the Catholics get the guardian angel thing from, there it is. There it is. I do believe that everybody has an angel or two or three or five, depending, I don't know, how reckless you are. Like Julia has a legion of angels <laughs> protecting her on the road and those kind of things. Is she downstairs? Good. All right. I should have known she didn't chip. And um, it's not a good or a bad thing, but we do believe in angels. So what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go and look for the one wandering off? And if he finds that I tell you the truth, he's happier about this one sheep that, uh, about, than about the ninety-nine that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Okay? Can you please take that for what it is? Okay? You've heard many teachings about that. that this, is, this is the nature of our good shepherd. He will leave the 99 to go for the one. And he will stop for the one. And it's so important 
Heidi Baker tells about the one. I think she wrote a book, Stop for the One, one or something like that. And, um, you know, um, um, for each one of our lives, God gives us a certain passion. I believe that. Um, like for her, it was she begged God for the ability to pray for the blind to see. And, and, and God said to her, will you stop for the one? And every one, every single blind person she saw in Mozambique, she stopped for. She didn't pass by one. And it took, I don't know, hundreds? I don't know, hundreds or maybe thousands of blind people that she prayed for. And then one day, she calls it the, the, the white, gray, clear phenomena. She would pray for, if she prayed for a blind woman, she had white eyes. It was a, it's a disease in Africa, quite common. You see people with one or two white eyes. It goes white, gray, clear, and her vision was restored. And she lost her mind because she stopped for the one. And that's the nature of our God. It's the story of the starfish that wash up on the beach. Grandpa, there are millions of them. What does it matter? Because Grandpa was walking with his daughter, throwing the starfish or whatever they were, clams or whatever, back in the ocean to save their lives. And she says, there are millions. How are we going to save them? He says, How, what does it matter? And he bent down. He says, it matters for this one. It matters for this one. And that's the nature of our Savior, that we don't come into a conglomerate, corporate, overwhelming, participatory gospel, but it matters for every human being on the planet that we walk into. If God gives you an unction or a desire or a small sense of compassion for someone in your day that you see that you that you see, that you feel something, it is awesome to develop the, um, the, uh, the mentality or the habit of our, of our shepherd to stop for the one. We were in San Diego years ago at a conference, and we were just having a coffee, doing nothing, just innocently having a coffee. And Alice and Eric, I didn't even know what was going on. I just saw the one minute they saw a guy outside the coffee shop getting into his car, was crippled, and they walked out and they, and they stopped for the one because they just felt the unction of the Spirit of God, and they prayed for that man right there in his car. Done. So it's that simple. He leaves the 99 to go for the 1. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. And, listen, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen to you, take one of the other ones along with you, and every matter may be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, Treat him as you would a pagan and a tax collector. I tell you the truth that whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Speaking of that undeniable connection, reality between heaven and earth, and that God is trying to merge that space with us using us as the conduits. No one else. Definitely not governments. Definitely not business. Us in government and business. But not through those elements for, per se. But us living according to the government of heaven. And therefore whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. There's this, there's this, there's this correlation. And um, tell you the truth. Whoever, uh, 19. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by your by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, um, this, is the, this is the thing here that we've used. This is the scripture that the church has used for, as we call it, discipline in the church. And, 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 and I think that like with, like, with, like with several things and nuances through our lives and journeys in Christendom, we've all picked up certain things. Let me just ask a quick survey. How many of you were Catholics at some point in your life? Wow. 
That's awesome. That's my favorite sign. How many of you were Presbyterians? Wow, Kath. How many of you were Anglicans? Methodists? Pentecostal church. Who grew up in an independent church from the word go? Never knew anything but independent church. Levi. <laughs> okay. okay, how many others of you were part of a secular organization like Satanism? Like uh, Freemasons? Like any other organization, society? Okay. So Pete Cazera says that we can have Jesus in our heart, but grandpa's in our bones. And so the reality that is that in our community like this, we bring our nuances of our Christendom and our experiences into the space together where we are now working things out. So Matthew 18 was used through most of the church as the scripture by which if your brother was in adultery or your brother was in some form of a sin or your sister, that you go to them and approach you. But I want to say to you that we've hyper-focused too much on the scripture in that particular sense only. It's much broader than that. And this is the reality. And we're going to get onto forgiveness. We're going to do it. And, uh, but these two are closely linked. This is how it is. If we have a relationship with one another within the church and we have anything against each other or we are hurt or offended because we live in this world and Jesus very clearly in the beginning of chapter 18 said that we will hurt others and others will hurt us. Okay? So now he's unfolding this reality. And this is so huge because I feel it is a big deal. God spoke to us during the fast about forgiveness in particular. Okay? And so unforgiveness and forgiveness are elements of the kingdom that needs to be so deeply ingrained in our, in our way of life. And here it says that if you have anything against your brother, it says go and talk to him. Go and talk to him. Okay? So this is not going to be a confession session, but I've not always done that in either of you. It doesn't mean call a prayer meeting. By, with someone else, a friend of yours that says, have, you know, we need to pray for this guy because, wow, wow, let's just pray. And basically it's a pseudo-prayer gospel set. Gossip set. No. It says, if your brother's done anything against you or you're aware of it, lay your gift at the altar and go find your brother make things right. How? You just talk. Talk to each other. Presuming that the, that the, that the predominant or most powerful atmosphere among us is that of love. That we love each other, prefer each other. And you go and talk to your brother. If he won't listen to you, if he does listen to you, you've won him over. It's great. Things are sorted out. And that's wonderful. That doesn't mean that's not an implication of walking your forgiveness out. It absolutely, it absolutely still implies, and I'm going to look at it in the next couple of verses. But the first thing to do is simple. Go and talk to your brother. Don't talk to someone else or ask someone else to talk to your brother. Don't even talk to God because Jesus doesn't say, first thing you do about it is pray. And I think prayer is also a hyper-focused reality. It's something we should be doing Talking to God all the time. But go and talk to Him. If He doesn't listen, take someone else with you. And then if He still doesn't listen, take another person with you. So three. And if He still doesn't listen, then tell the whole church. Then you can tell everybody. It doesn't say publicly. And it says then treat the person as a tax collector, as as, as someone who then proves that he's not living as a contributor to the coming of the kingdom of heaven in this place. And the bottom line of that is that we forgive from our heart. From our heart. Heart. So, so, and, 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 and so that means that the, the brother's heart is hard, or the brother's heart has come to a place where it's never really been circumcised by, in the spirit, with, by the spirit of God. It's always been an external thing done by the hands of men, like Paul says. 
And so we're still on the premise of being good, ethical, moral people. Instead of spirit-led disciples and followers of Jesus, the king of the kingdom. It's a big difference. I hope I'm communicating this properly. And that's how it is. So, talk to him alone. Doesn't he win him over? Take someone else with you. And I also feel that sometimes, if you're in an abusive relationship with someone that is harsh and critical and rude to you, you don't ever, ever have to be with that person alone again. Trust me, I've experienced that. Because in our human nature as well, people, their first tendency is to project. So the, the grandpa comes out of the bone, and abuse that happened sometimes generations ago is projected by default onto you as a person. That's why you take someone else with you. Take John with you. He's a total peacemaker. Or whatever. I'm just saying take anybody. Take your mate with you. So that you never have to be in that place or that space again alone with that person. Does that make sense? And at the end of it all, the treating of the tax collector is a very important deal. Because Jesus didn't cut the tax collector off. I don't say that you have to enter into intimate relationship with that person who then makes it plain that his heart is hard and he will not change and he's not willing to contribute to the community. Because Jesus' word says, by this will all men know in the world that you are my disciples. Disciples are followers. By this will all men know, by your love for one another. So if a brother or a sister's heart is so defiled that they will not hear from you, from you and a mate, from you and a couple of mates in the community that they apparently have a relationship with, their hearts are defiled, and we cannot cut them off, but we can still treat them like a, like a, like a tax collector or a, or, a, or a Pharisee. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times... Shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle account with his servants. As he began to settle the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Just quickly, one talent is 20 years of wages. So basically, Julia had this word that she used that was kabadillion. That was uncountable. That was beyond kabadillion. So this guy owed the king kabadillion money. All right? So basically, an unpayable debt. And he began to settle the man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And listen to this. <laughs> The servant fell on his knees before him and he said, Be patient with me. He begged, I will pay back everything. That's you and me. No, I can still do it. I see it sometimes in the church as well. Those that cannot just come and sit at the feet of Jesus find greater significance in doing for Jesus than being with Jesus. And it's a real struggle. It holds you back. This parable is partly about that mindset, the Martha Mary mentality. The Martha ends up disgruntled and entitled, and the Mary is oblivious, seemingly, but sits at the feet. And Jesus sums it all up and just says this Not you are wrong, you are right. Mary have chosen the better thing. And so the mentality to say, God, just be patient with me, I'm going to pay it all back. Oh my gosh. 
It's like saying, who's, gonna, who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's like saying, what more can I do like the rich young ruler? It's like an impossible scenario. Why climb there? It's like climbing the wrong mountain. It's futile. But he claimed, he fell on his knees and says, please be patient. He, he, he implored the king's patience instead of his mercy. And the servant fell on his knees in verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found, oh, then the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. Wow. Verse 28, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. He said exactly the same words as he said to the king in an impossible scenario. This servant could pay him back. But he refused instead. He went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could could pay the debt. And the other servants saw what had happened. They were greatly distressed. And they went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant, you wicked servant, he said. I cancelled your debt, and this debt of yours, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy? See, there's the distinction. Not patience, but mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Please say, from your heart. Okay, I'm not going to even try and go to chapter 19, okay? So just chill out. I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to do that right here. I'm going to stop right here. So forgiveness. Um, sometimes, um, when I was at college, I, we did, I did this mechanical engineering uh, thing. And I, um, in our first lecture, our, our professor got us in and, he, and we watched a video um, called uh, National Safety Association, NSA. And basically, it was a video of, uh, of all uh, um, accidents that were happening in the, in the workforce. Like, I'm not even going to even try and go into how bad they were. They were so horrifying, I couldn't believe it. And he made a point of safety by showing us what will happen if we're not aware of safety. Okay. So I want to start this chapter, this piece on forgiveness, by telling you what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not ignoring or forgetting. If you are in an abusive situation, I want to say this to you today, humbly as a pastor of a church, if you are a wife who is being physically abused, statistically, 15 out of every 100 women are physically abused. So if we are 100 people, 15 if there's 100 women here, I don't think there is. But So, there, it's, it's what? No. Oh, no, it's in the church. It's in the church as well. It's in the church. It's in the whole world, okay? In North America. So, if you were in an abusive relationship, my expectation of you is not to stay in that relationship proving that you are a Christian and a disciple of Jesus. You need to get, firstly, out of that space. Immediately. And if we can help you get out of that space to safety, then we can start to process what forgiveness looks like. Just to make it clear. So ignoring and forgetting is definitely not the same as forgiveness. Number two. Forgiveness does not mean condoning or excusing. 
Forgiveness does not mean tolerating or allowing further abuse. Forgiveness does not even mean reconciliation and restoration. Forgiveness does not mean returning back to the way things were before. That's not forgiveness. And forgiveness does not mean allowing the offender to escape the consequences. Offender sounds very brutal, but you know what I mean. That's not what forgiveness means. And so before we talk about forgiveness, I think that there are several misconceptions in the church of Jesus Christ about what that means. It means that we must grit our teeth and bear abuse so that we could be like Jesus. That's monasticism, the most detrimental move in Christendom through centuries and centuries, where we ascribe righteousness from our suffering that we inflict on ourselves. It's contrary to the cross of Christ that we must pay, and in our paying, we're becoming more holy and more righteous. It's actually false humility and false righteousness. So forgiveness... Brings us always, always back to the cross. Kath prayed this morning down in the prayer meeting right there. If we do not see what Jesus did for us, we will never actually have the capacity to forgive others. And we will revert to the secular ways of saying that, oh, I'm just going to ignore it. That's not forgiveness. Oh, it's just going to be, uh, I'm just going to excuse it. And, and we never really enter into the space of forgiveness. Forgiving others means to release them from their obligation to pay back their fault. They could be dead or they could be alive. And you can walk your entire life in unforgiveness and never be free from it. And as a result, the next generation will not be free from it. So turn with me quickly to Genesis chapter 4. And I'm wrapping it up. Yes, Peter, asking uh, Jesus, how many times should I forget? So we know chapter 4 is the first account of a brother and a brother who did not forgive. He did not walk in forgiveness. And as a result, we know Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. That's right. I think there was a joke about that somewhere. I can't, couldn't remember it. But Cain killed Abel. Oh, yes, Cain. Cain's spirit. Yeah. Mainstay. Cain killed Abel. Anyway, so Cain killed Abel and Cain went off. This, you could read the chapter, it's amazing, uh, it's amazing the consequences of, the, of this reality. Cain lay with his wife and had a child. And he had another child, another child, another child. And he's, he, one of the children was Enoch, and, and he, I think it was his oldest son. He, he built a city, Cain and his wife, and Enoch started building a city and named the city Enoch, the city of Enoch. Nobody in this building wants to live in the city of Enoch. It was utterly depraved. It was riddled with hatred and destruction and nobody could flourish and nothing could grow and human nature and humankind suffered under those circumstances. But the city continued to grow because of procreation. People had children. But the city grew and it's an exact picture of the world that we live in to this very day. I don't even want to go down that thing because, uh, because I, am, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm good like that. But I don't think that light can be seen if there's no darkness and we're not aware of the darkness and we live oblivious like the snake with the curly eyes staring into the light. The only thing that happens as a result of that is that we lose all sense of mission and responsibility and we live in this life to exist for ourselves and we take everything and we suck everything out of life and it's awesome but it just stops with us. Sure, sorry for screaming. 
It stops with us. That's not the point. The point is it must have a perpetual reality. And then they had another son called Lamech. Lamech was wicked because he grew up in Enoch. He was the son of Cain. The, the, the son who refused to forgive his brother. And despite pleadings from God, crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. It's like a wild animal. It's like I, we had a monkey on the farm when I was a child. This monkey would l- sit on the grapevine right here. As I, nobody else, just me. As I walked out of the kitchen, back kitchen door, the monkey would jump on my head. And I loved him. And he bit me on my ears, bit me around my neck quite a lot of times. But I loved this monkey. And I often forgot about him. He's crouching at the door. Okay, now just see this as a, as a tiger. That's what forgiveness, it's unforgiveness is crouching at your door. Your, your most unexpected moment when you leave, it will attack you, devour you and kill you and destroy your life. And Lamech said, I will not forgive my brother. This is his son, this is Cain's son. He says, this is, the reason why I'm finding this is because the only other time in scripture where seven times, 77 times seven is mentioned. He said, if you think vengeance is it's bad at seven times. You're going to see me pay vengeance on my enemy 77 times. Seven. It's wicked. It's the land of Nod, which means wandering. No direction, no king, no God. No, no submission to anybody except me, my flesh, my desires. And I will not forget and I will not forgive. I will not forgive you at all. I will hold you ransom. And the perpetuation of that reality is generational. It happened in your life. And if you ignore it, you can never enter forgiveness. If you keep ignoring it and burying it deeper and deeper and deeper, your children will grow up in Enoch, an utterly deprived place. No lordship, no king, no love, no kindness, no mercy. Can you imagine a place like this? Ask yourself, how are you doing with your parenting in that way? Whoa, Yaku, how are you doing in your parenting in that way? I'm terrible at that sometimes. But sin is crouching at our door. It's wrapped up in unforgiveness. You ignore unforgiveness... You're building a generational curse into your future. Your children, your children's children. And we are not those, friends. We are the disciples, the followers of Jesus. And even if you come from the gutters, it can stop in your generation. Even if you had a mom and a dad who, who, who was violently abusive, any extremities that you can think of, it can still stop in your generation. Why do you think we've done weeks and weeks and pressing into God for emotional healing and health? Because it's real. It's a very real thing. It's incredible. It's a very real thing. Because we want to have a generational reality. So in my prayer, when I'm crying out to God, Jesus, Jesus, this building is so small in relation to the cities where we live and the massive influx of people. Why do we have to have five services? Trust me, I'm not driven by it. I'm just saying, Lord, in relation to what? <laughs> for us to be that countercultural expression. Forgive. Lamech, Enoch, Cain, clear story, clear picture. Jesus took that story from the old. Brought it right here into the new and said, guys, the question is not who is the greatest in the kingdom. The question is if you hold people back, if you hurt people and you are hurt by others and you do not learn what it means really to forgive, then you will miss everything. And you will vengeful, you become so vengeful. You think this is bad? It's going to get 77 times worse for you under my life. 
The church cannot be that space. We have to be a space of safety. I hate that it sounds so cliche when I say it. It sounds so much better in my head when I think it up. We've got to be a safe space. And, and, and when I say safe space, I don't mean that we're flaky and we never hurt and say bad things. Because you all do. We all do. It means that when we do that, and when we become aware of that, we talk to each other and we forgive. Quick to forgive. Slow to anger. Faithful to a thousand generations. It's the scripture quoted more by the Bible than any other scripture in the Bible. It's the character of our God. Our God is not just some cool thing that we look to for examples to live by. He's really the Lord of our lives. And so, so we yield and submit ourselves to that, even through the most impossible times. Hence, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, empowers us. Not to be a better me, a better be your best self. No. No. To reach, to reach, to reach the beautiful people in this beautiful city, in this beautiful creative place all around us. These magnificent human beings that are all around us. And you are either the fragrance of life or the stench of death. And forgiveness is a totally big deal. And even as I'm saying this, I feel that many of us have thought that ignoring stuff is forgiving stuff. And you know what? I don't think you're going to go to hell. I just think that your children will not know God because of that. They won't know God. They won't see God. And that's my thing. We don't have to be perfect parents. Sure. Thank God for that. We just have to be parents who show our children that we can say, look, I'm sorry, please can you forgive me for that? Or, you hurt me. Or, let's communicate, talk it through, talk it through, talk it through. So let's pray, please.